Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. This week on The Gray Area, Stephen Markley, author of the novel The Deluge, on why he was compelled to write an epic book about climate change. If 50 years from now we have used this period in history to turn the corner on the climate crisis, and you and I and everybody listening to this was a part of that, that is an incredible way to spend one's life. That's This Week on The Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get going, I have a small request of you, the listener to this show. This is how it works. This show is supported by advertising. If we know more about you, we can get more money for advertising, which means we can put out a better show. So I want you to go to podsurvey.com slash longform. Take a quick anonymous survey that helps us and our advertisers get to know you a little bit better. And once you've completed the survey, you can sign up to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, podsurvey.com slash longform. It really helps. Thank you. Here is the show. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I am speaking remotely to Max Linsky. Hello. How are you, sir? We are on... Uh, I don't know where Evan Ratliff is. Don't tell me. Evan is actually sneaky in New York. You and I are both not in New York, and somehow it was decided that you and I should talk on the phone. Is that because you don't know how to do a FaceTime call with three people? <laughs> Definitely. It took me uh, an embarrassingly long time to figure out how to call you, but I did it. And now we're talking, who did you talk to this week? I got to speak to someone here in the Bay Area, uh, Alexis Madrigal, who is someone we've wanted to have on the show for many years. Uh, He's done all sorts of things, science and tech blogging at The Atlantic, uh, was the editor-in-chief at Fusion. He has a new podcast series coming out called Containers, which is about the role of the uh, shipping container, the stackable shipping container, as the uh, conduit of the physical internet. The, uh, the way that things move around the world. You guys are going to like uh, explain that more during the podcast, right? I actually still don't totally <laughs> understand it, but it is, it's interesting no matter, no matter what you understand about it. Um, as usual, we're brought to you by MailChimp. Just got a great uh, email from uh, MailChimp. Uh, wedding invitation to my sister's wedding. So uh, you know that MailChimp is uh, deep in your life when they are uh, conveying familial uh, wedding invitations. Congratulations, Ellie Lammer. And uh, here's Aaron Lammer with Alexis Madrigal. Welcome, Alexis Madrigal. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I think this is maybe the most scenic podcast taping I've ever done. <laughs> We're uh, overlooking the San Francisco Bay and drinking beer. Um, it's wonderful. This is how I want to do all podcast taping in the future. Uh, I've been trying to get you on the show for a while. I don't even know how long. We've been doing the show since it seems like the Bush administration. And you pinged me and said that you had this new podcast coming out and it would be cool to talk about. So I just, I literally just flew in and listened to it on the plane here. It's not, <laughs> it's coming out, it comes out February 28th. Yep. Exactly. Uh, it's called Container. Containers. Containers. Apologies. Yep. Um, 
I want to get to that, but I want to like start with like how you got to this point. So I think I became aware of your writing when you were doing, I guess blog is blogging the right word. Science blogging for the Atlantic. Um, How did you end up becoming a science blogger? I'm not afraid of blogging as a term. Um, I started writing posts for smaller blogs like GigaOM back in 2007. I didn't go to journalism school or anything like that. It was a time where there were all these weird kinds of writing on the internet you could find before blogging per se was like professionalized yep. through time and big media companies moved in to have blogs. Back then there were individual people who maintained single topic blogs and so I started one that was called Consumers Conspicuous, which was uh, basically about technology, not for young white guys. So it was like technology that might work for old people. Now, you know, like one of the, <laughs> my favorite uh, stories of this social network for immigrants that was actually supposed to be like sort of linked to their hometowns as opposed to wherever they were in the United States. Um, and I used those samples, I suppose they were, these blog posts, to start writing $12 posts for Wired.com. Back in, in that time, they were looking for someone to write about uh, science and climate and energy. And I was like, sure, I know nothing about those things. Let's write about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and, like, I'm, I'm curious, like, what does it feel like the first five things you wrote for not, know, not knowing oh, anything? Jesus. How did you feel? I was, you know, um, there was a phrase when I was growing up in Southern Washington State called pitting out. And it was just like when you were like sweating, like just your armpits were sweating like as a teenager. It felt like that. It felt like I was constantly so anxious. Um, But my response to it essentially was to just like be an insane reporter. Like I would just like call people up and demand that they talk to me, even if they were like, well, you know, maybe you should talk to this other person. I'd be like, well, let you and I talk first and then I'll call them, you know? And so that's kind of how I got into it. I mean, I've uh, also heard like, actually, I think from one of your former colleagues at the Atlantic, uh, Ross Anderson was on the show and he was like, a lot of scientists, this is the first time anyone's ever called them. And you can get a lot of bandwidth out of the first call from a journalist. Hell yes. And I mean, Ross actually used to live, you know, a few blocks from here, as a matter of fact, in Berkeley and I'm this awesome science journalist. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Most scientists are like, I'm sorry, you're interested in this? for, But even ones who aren't, the table stakes are very low. Yeah. You know, there's this long-standing debate uh, whether T-Rex was a predator or a scavenger. Essentially, every time a story, uh, uh, either side comes out, but particularly the scavenger side, there's like a flurry of stories about that. T-Rex was a scavenger. Yeah. He wasn't actually a fierce predator. And like all you have to show most scientists is that you're aware that there's a debate. And maybe you've like looked at, not even read a few papers about the back and forth. And they're willing to talk to you for as long as you want, you know? Yeah. Uh, so... You're writing blog posts. So I'm writing blog posts for, for Wired.com. Eventually get hired. Maybe at, rent money at best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably not in, not in San Francisco. Maybe like Oakland, El Cerrito kind of rent money. No, I, was pro- I was living in San Francisco, but my, my then girlfriend, now wife, was definitely paying more of the rent. Um, thanks, honey. And I was running up uh, actually pretty severe credit card debt. So I decided to write a book because all writers know if you want money, of course you should write a book. Yeah. Uh, so that's how I wrote this book that was about the history of, of green technology. Um, Did it succeed in paying off your credit card debt? It succeeded only in paying off my credit card debt. As a tactical intervention in my financial life, I think it was perfect. Yeah. As 
uh, as anything else, it, it, it leaves a lot to be desired. I mean, there are pieces of that book I still really like. And basically every piece I like, no one has ever talked to me about. So I assume no one has actually read it. But like a lot of the stuff that was about essentially the culture of science yeah. in the 1970s. So interesting. A lot of the analysis in my mind. I mean, that's so I'm not saying my book rendering of it is interesting, but the story. So is you so write a book about this. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. But, um, but yeah, you know, that book didn't sell for shit. I think, uh, and and it also almost like broke me as a human. Like I, because of aforementioned credit card debt, like couldn't take any time off from Wired. So I was basically just I would work all day in the digital mines, get home, eat dinner with Sarah Rich, my wife, and then um, I would go back to work until I fell asleep on my computer. And there was like a, a time where we were in the supermarket. It's like literally melting my brain. We're in the supermarket. And she's like, can you go get some blueberries? And I like walk over to the supermarket and I literally find myself staying at the supermarket five seconds later with no idea why I'm there, what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, there was some crying in the shower. I'm not going to that. This is so hard. Um, a lot of people who write a first book, um, particularly kind of early into their writing careers, describe it to me mostly in physical terms, like of like a mer- mer- grueling physical marathon. Like, almost no one talks about like the writing, the sentence structure. Everyone talks about like almost dying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it was and it was very much that. And I also think that I made the worst possible decision about the kind of book to write. A, a sweeping history working through couple hundred years of American history with multiple kinds of technology that you had to sort of learn the engineering background of like each of them. I mean, it was totally insane. I mean, on the other hand, I would say that what I got from it was I essentially became conversant with like the academic field history of technology and history of science, which then sort of opened me up to be able to go to the Atlantic with an idea of what to do a technology section that would work for the Atlantic, right? That would be sort of culturally situated, historically contextualized, and the kinds of things that I tried to like bring to science and technology coverage at the Atlantic when I went there in 2010 were basically a direct result of having stored all of this academic theoretical knowledge yeah. uh, up. When I went to go blog, it wasn't like I had two sticks to rub against, right? There was like the day's events and then there was this theoretical orientation that I had developed and I could put those two things together and pop out blog posts that were much deeper than they would have otherwise been, you know? Okay, so you're going to the Atlantic. Yeah. And everything that you've talked about wanting to write about, either like technology not for young white men, the history of green technology and science... When I think of the things that draw audiences to technology writing, you're basically like playing the opposite of the hits. You're not talking about money. You're not talking about VCs. You're not talking about um, changing the world through uh, a new uh, device. You're talking about like the flip side of that coin. How did you sell that to the Atlantic as the right approach to covering technology and science? They were very skeptical at first, I think. Um, like They were just skeptical of the possibility that that would work. You know, that, that we could do no gadget coverage and that that would be a thing because that's what tech blogs were, were seen to be. I think... Were, um, you, were you advocating no gadget coverage? Because usually people are like, 
you know, one for them, one for me about this. Kind I was of stuff. basically, you know, when they came to me when I was still at Wired, I had no interest in like being a technology blogger in that sense, you know, yeah. because that meant a very specific thing to me at that time. It's 2010. The technology beat is basically scoped as as a gadget beat. Yeah. With like a few forays into other things. And you're living here in the Bay Area, which is the epicenter of the other kind of tech coverage. Like you're yeah, right. meeting people and you're like, hey, how about these windmills, guys? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, actually, yeah, kind of. Um, and and I think the thing was, I was just like, let me try it. Let me let me try to do this other kind of coverage, and and we'll see. And you know, analytics and the constant quantitative pressures of digital journalism are a complex thing, and they oftentimes lead to bad outcomes. However, I think at that point, the Atlantic was small enough. And the hole for interesting technology coverage was big enough, and I think enough people were recognizing that technology coverage could be more interesting, um, that the story, the things did really well. Um, and, you know, a few months in, they were like, oh, well, this is like someone who's a rainmaker for us, <laughs> you yeah. know, as opposed to some, you know, that these things may seem insane, um, that this would be something someone's interested in, but it, there was, in fact, an audience for it that was willing to be there. What was your methodology for generating story ideas and, and figuring out what to cover during that period? I mean, I, I have never, I've never been someone who's like short on those things. I, th I think that there probably was a time when I, every single thing that I did, I was like, maybe there's this story in this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there, was, yeah. there was a time, you know, where that's just how it was, you know? So literally anything that I happened to be reading, if I came across something that was interesting, I would post it, you know? And I think it was a slightly different era, Yes, you know, from what exists now. Like, I don't think that would work. Like I was looking at uh, people may or may not know Nuzzle, that thing that kind of ranks links out of your news yeah, feed, whatever like it sifts, is. Yeah, kind of like like interesting articles yeah. that most, more yeah. people on your social network Exactly. Have. It says it just ranks them in terms of yeah. how many people have tweeted them, yes. basically, that link. And, you know, 18 of the top 20 at any time that I look now are all about Donald Trump. Yeah. That was a different, more distributed internet. Things were not as centralized as they are now. And I think what... I was able to do at that time was kind of capture a niche that was like, do you want to see different kind of tech coverage? Like there's not that many places to go. And here's, here's one. Now, of course, there's many places that do interesting tech coverage and it's a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but the whole media environment is so radically changed, you know? What do you see as the biggest changes? I mean, I, it's, um, I, in reading back through your, uh, Canon, um, I, it's notable to me that you are both hyper aware of the way that Facebook and various um, news centralizers have changed the environment um, while not necessarily buying into that as a good thing. Yeah, man. I, I think There's a lot of people who yeah. don't know much about it who are against it. You strike me as someone who's really looked into the Facebook algorithm, Deep. possibly benefited from it but are still a skeptic against it i wouldn't say i mean i don't even know what i would say i here's what i would say skeptic I, is almost like how can you be a skeptic it, it exists it exi <laughs> yeah, we, right, right. we acknowledge I that it's skeptical real. of the gravity yeah, yeah. i mean you know it, it was a strange set of events facebook world setting in that i just happened to have a child my first child uh right when facebook was kind of really turning on the taps 
And so when I came back from paternity leave, like it felt like the whole internet had changed. Different stories were succeeding for the Atlantic. Different things were at the top of like the the sort of impact charts. You know, <laughs> it was just like, wait, what just happened? Like yeah. I was only gone for six weeks or two months. Um, and so because of that, I feel like I've always been really acutely aware of like when Facebook entered something really changed and I felt it in a, in a really deep sense because most of my success had preceded Facebook in a, in a traffic sense, you know, and I had to like learn to adapt what I wanted to do to Facebook game. And I think, you know, I, I, I think that what I came to, um, is realizing, and I'm, you know, I should like CF Ben Smith's end of year note, uh, to, to Buzzfeed because I felt like it actually touched on something smart and and really significant is that you know now you need to touch your stories to the sort of electrified rail of the trump story and i think that's always been true in some sense like if you wanted to do a story that was off the beaten track you had to like find how thematically or in some way you could tie that you could just sort of string a line over to the thing that people were really thinking about in mainline technology and so i i feel like i'm that's kind of what I did once Facebook world came into play, you know, 2012, 2013. But it was also hard because suddenly everything was more centralized over the span of like a few months. Like the main stories were the main stories and it was harder and harder to get traction with more niche or even just things that are really important but are not being talked about right at that moment. Um, it became harder to get attention for those sort of longer wave stories. Yeah. I mean, for you... As someone who benefited a lot from uh, social media and building up a, none dare call it a brand, uh, on the internet, <laughs> was was that, I remember I looked and you had like 500,000 Twitter followers, I feel like. At no, some no, point. no, no, like no, 200,000. 200, okay. Yeah, you yeah. had like a lot of Twitter followers for a person writing a, a blog for the Atlantic about green science, right? <laughs> so... You had definitely benefited from a lot of that stuff, but then this other wave came out that was just like 200,000. <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I honestly think that one of the decisions that I've made in my career more recently is the idea that like you just, you have to just be okay with not scaling, right? right? Like everything is so often about scale in media. Like I'm just gonna get like really, and I just like, I think what I've realized that for me, like, yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I really wanna scale, you know? Yeah. Like I don't think you, the, the kind of dilution of the core thing that you wanna do, I think is more important than reaching the maximum number of people. So when you're used to being mainline into that hot rail and like, um, getting some juice off of it and you kind of say, Hey, I don't want any more juice. Like stop turning it up, you know, and you want to do your own, your own thing in a way. What happens when you stop trying to make your posts reach a maximum number of people? Um, it's almost easier. I would think editorially to try to attract the maximum audience. Cause at least you have a clear goal in mind. Yeah. You know, I mean, here's what I, here's what I would say. I, you know, right now all the Trump, stories are basically registering as like one category which is like trump yeah i right? love how you're talking about trump by the way because you're you're like talking about trump but not specifically dating it <laughs> <laughs> no it's just and i and i won't it's just trump there's yeah. the trumpness of the world and yes. it's what's dominating everything i think what i'm trying to do is like if you 
I mean, this may sound totally insane. Clearly, I've been spending too much time like thinking about waves. But you can sort of, you can pull apart the different frequencies that make up the overall Trump phenomenon. Yeah. And I think what I am thinking about is how do you connect to some of those other frequencies? Um, I saw a story that was essentially about how trying to be an alpha male is ruining everything, which I totally agree. I think that's true. <laughs> but, but the entire realm of evolutionary psychology yeah. and the way that people have interpreted the history of humans as biological organisms to somehow justify whatever it is that they're doing in their lives, that's actually an incredible frequency within Trump's support, like the whole idea of like cucks and betas and alphas yeah. and all that stuff. And when I think it, that, that is also electrified, even if it's not the Trump thing. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to find are the other frequencies within that large story that I could tap into to tell stories that I'm still interested in telling. And I think it's really significant, even like politically, to be able to do that, because otherwise we're all staring at the Trump horizon. Even if you're opposing it, even if you're resisting, even if you're doing all those other things, yeah. you're fundamentally only thinking about the things that Trump makes people think about. Yeah. And there's all these other things happening in the world. I think the world of science is certainly one that you can see that in. The world of technology is certain something where you can see that in. You know, there's like a report about germline engineering being able to like permanently alter people's genetics. And like it drops like a rock because everyone's focused on Trump, right? I mean, all of these things are happening in this world and will continue to happen through the whole administration. And we need to be able to find ways to shift our own personal journalistic horizons to adjacent areas from the Trump phenomenon while understanding that, of course, this is going to dominate discourse because of its unprecedented nature and, and also just how much the press is actually a part of the story. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Stamps.com. These days, you can get practically everything on demand. I just got a sandwich on demand. But... When it comes to mailing things, it's often not on demand. It's a long wait at the post office, which is not really open very many hours. Why are you doing this? You can get postage on demand with stamps.com. Let me give you an example. I wanted to sell t-shirts for the show. Awesome, right? No, Max said no. You are a lazy man, Aaron. You'll sell the t-shirts and then not mail it out. I would never wait in a line at the post office. Guess what? Not a problem anymore with stamps.com. We've got a digital scale. We print the postage right here on our office printer. Send them out, no problem. They're gonna be available soon. This has changed our whole game here and it can change your game too. If you go to stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in long form. You get a four week trial and includes postage and a digital scale. Again, that is stamps.com, code long form. Stamps.com, never Go to the post office again. Thanks, Stamps.com. Also sponsoring the show this week, it's Casper. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It includes supportive memory phone, an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. And over 20,000 reviews give it an average of 4.8 stars. It is quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Now, this is the best part. I have a Casper mattress, but I didn't know if I was going to like it. Guess what? They will give it to you 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. They get that you're going to spend a third of your life on this mattress, so you should really like it. Try that at a mattress warehouse. You won't get it. So you can get 
50 bucks off a Casper mattress by visiting casper.com slash longform and using offer code longform. You'll also get free shipping and free returns in the U.S. and Canada. Terms and conditions apply. Again, 50 bucks off your mattress, casper.com slash longform using the offer code longform. Thank you, Casper. Here I am back with Alexis Madrigal. What have been your experiences when you're trying to build an audience that is like-minded in interests along a, let's say, not every single person in America line, but a scientist to read line or um, non-young white men who are interested in technology? Like, what is it like trying to build, I guess, a niche audience? I, I don't know that I've thought about it as a uh, an audience development strategy in fact yeah. i think sometimes that can be a destructive way of thinking about yeah. editorial um i really think that individual really good stories drive audience growth yeah if i really like i you know i mean it's not something that i honestly it's not something that i consciously process in that way yeah but tends to be my best biggest stories have driven people to read more stories of mine which yeah. is like Totally stands to reason as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I, like, I honestly think the best example of that is when I got really, like, obsessed with how maps worked, like Google Maps. And so I did, like, a super deep story on Google Maps. Um, and then every uh, time there was some map nerd who got interested in Google Maps, they would Google right. it. And then some percentage of them would email me. And then I would end up, like, writing more map stories. And I think I almost thought of it more as, like, building up intellectual density within a particular subdomain. And that density kind of gravitationally drew the people who were interested in that. Let's talk about that Google Map story. Because um, I think it's emblematic of a lot of the stories you've done where you come in as sort of a fascinated amateur and leave with way, way too much information. <laughs> so you start thinking about maps as step one in the automation of the world. The first thing you need to do before you automate the world is you have to map the world. Google has probably gone as far down that uh, rabbit hole as anyone. What do you do when you want to jump from that amateur level? Uh, you know, uh, one thing that was great about The Atlantic and that I have, you know, is not consistent across all publications is it is quite good for getting access to places like Google. Um, so a lot of what I would do would just really clearly explain to Google, this is a story that I want to do. And I feel like I can do it, you know, as well as anybody. I mean, they're an interesting place. I mean, Google in and of itself as a, as a PR apparatus is like quite distinct in my mind from any other. I honestly think that they try and reward people who go deeper into stories. And that's not to say that they don't do all the other things that PR places do, but yeah. I think like, seems like internally they're rewarded for letting people go deeper if it's going to be an interesting story. And so, so that was kind of, you know, step one was like, Hey, I'm interested in this. And then honestly, I just started thinking about it, talking to other people who were interested in mapping, but that story is really, you know, if you really think about that story, it's, it's built around the human labor of map making. And I think that oftentimes you can make a story much bigger by being like this story plus power or this story plus labor. Yeah. And you, it allows you to do things that you otherwise wouldn't really quickly. Because if you start thinking about, well, who does this? Then you ask for the right kind of interview. You're like, well, I want to meet the person who rectifies these maps, who makes, who fixes the mistakes. And I want to watch them do that work. Yeah. Um, I think that, 
is such an under underexploited way of like generating interesting stories is like actually finding the people who do the labor within technology companies because we tend to basically take it from idea to product yeah. and then there's like what do you think the technology company exists for when you're looking for that human story like how do you how do you go to someone who is a technologist by trade and be like i'm kind of more interested in the human stuff you know, it's interesting. I think most of them are too, because if they're if they're actively involved in the work, like certainly like the strategy people and the people way up high, they're not involved in it. But the people who are like the product managers, that's all they think about. Mm -hmm. What's the workflow for this thing, right? And if you can get them to believe that you actually care about that, then they're interested in talking to you about it. Um, I've been thinking a lot about um, how you report people doing what they do. Um, and it's way more boring when they do it on computers. <laughs> that's it. That's well, it, it is unless you, and I so I've been thinking about, oh, so it's a problem you, for the movies. Also, yeah, it's certainly like, a problem in. for the movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, totally, totally. People have not figured out how to represent screen life yeah. in any other medium. Uh, that's 100% true. Um, I think the, the thing that I think a lot about is how someone like a McPhee, uh, who for me is like the best reporter of technology work that that's out there um you know like how, how does he do it and and so i've it oftentimes gets sort of really compressed inside of his work like there's this amazing story he has about this truck driver who drives around uh a bunch of liquids like he has a big liquid container and yeah. he, you know drives it around and you know of course you remember the details like about his boot collection and like his whatever the beauty of his truck and all that other shit and his the lingo that he uses um but when you think about like the sequences where he's talking about work what he's so good at is you get all this information about what's happening in the timeline of the work being done. There's another one where he's talking about piloting ships and there's this, you know, scale model place that exists somewhere in Europe where, where ship pilots go to train. And you get all this information about the decision-making that they're doing as you're going. But then when you really think about that, so he goes and he does that experience with people, but then he must have to re-report hours worth of time with those guys about those moments, about what they were thinking and how it worked. And so I've actually really been thinking a ton recently about how you develop a reporting methodology that allows you to do that, yeah. that allows you to explain how and why people are doing what they're doing when they're doing a job or, or when they're just like in their lives where you already know the sequence of events, but you're trying to understand the mental processes that generated what happened. Right. And I'm, that's, what, that's what I'm really interested in. And it's one way you get past the screen problem. Someone's doing something on a screen, that's boring. But what's happening in their brain as they do something on a screen is super interesting. So you, you came to Fusion in oh, yeah, yeah. 2014? 2014, yeah, end of 2014. You started doing, you did a TV show or a, mm -hmm. yeah, TV show. A, yeah, TV show. So yeah. it's, it's a TV show. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, we don't have to like put weird asterisks no, 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 next no, no, to no, it. No, no, a TV show. Ran on uh, called cable Called Real Future. Called Real Future. Yeah. What inspired you to branch out from like in format? You know, I mean, it's a really, it's actually a really simple answer and it's kind of goes to what we were talking about earlier. Facebook world. Yeah. Um, I was kind of looking at what it took to be in the daily digital story grind and saying to myself, like, can I do this? It was just really tough to imagine being able to continue to do what I wanted to do as a journalist with o only in a, in a purely digital capacity. So I was like, well, what if I just like expanded what I do to these other media, you know, so do some live events, do more television, 
um, and do, and, and then you can keep doing digital stuff, but make it only part of kind of like an array of things. Um, I, I think that, uh, it sounds more ambitious in retrospect than, than it did at the time to me. Like I just sort of felt like, oh yeah, well we'll like make a TV show and we'll like do some events. What's the big deal? Um, of course those things are like incredibly difficult yeah. Yeah. and they, shortly after I got to Fusion, I became the editor in chief. And so I didn't really get to dig in to building the show in the way that I thought I was going to, nor did I get to do that for the events. Um, I basically ended up being like a, a manager, you know, an editorial leader for, you know, dozens of, of people. And uh, in a really difficult media environment, um, Fusion was also in a, how do I want to think about this? Fusion was in a complicated place, you know. It was new. It, it was new, but it also was attached to a place that couldn't help it that much because it was all in Spanish. So the audiences that it was attached to on the Univision side were useless, essentially. Um, the Disney side of it, because it was still at that point, you know, a joint venture with Disney, were also incredibly difficult to, to bring over. It didn't, it wasn't clear how those things were supposed to interact, you know, ABC News, essentially, in Fusion. And so what the job ended up being essentially was just trying to carve an identity out for this group of people who had been assembled essentially to create something new without really knowing what that new thing was. And so at the beginning, it was just always like, what's fusion? What's fusion? What's like, it was literally like you could like, you can imagine the sound design of like coming into that job. And there's just like all over the place. There's just like people going, what's fusion? What's fusion? Like top, bottom, left, right, all over, you know? And internally, the same thing was true. Like people who worked for me were like, what's fusion? What are we doing? How does this work? And so one thing that I really believe about digital media is that it's an incredibly operational thing. Like it's all about the ops. Like you need to have the flywheel running. You need to be making stuff day over day. And you need to have processes that allow you to generate stories. Give us like a general direction and give us processes that work. Right. And so that's what I tried to do. Um, it's an inter uh, there was a cultural belief that everything that had existed before 2005 was legacy media and that the great challenge for legacy media was that it was legacy media and had to deal with its uh, the hulking carcass that it was um, carrying around. And there was a normative judgment in that too that many people who came up digitally thought that shit should die. Right. They were they they felt like and legacy media should go away. Should go away and had like a a terminal problem that that was never going to get fixed that that weight was going to bring it down and then there was a belief that newer companies that were coming out um fusion grantland these sort of newly assembled were just going to spin something up from scratch had a uh, advantage because they did not have that legacy riding around everywhere with them but what you're describing is the legacy is in some ways the identity and that building an identity from scratch is a very hard question to answer. At what point did that dawn on you that that was the central challenge of what you were doing? Oh my God, uh, pretty much immediately. I mean, before I was editor in chief, certainly, because it, 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 I found it was much harder to write stories for Fusion than it was for The Atlantic. And the reason was that you weren't sure what you were publishing into. And I think that one of the hardest, hardest things about moving really fast is you need as many 
variables to not change as possible. The CMS is locked in, the like voice is locked in, the mission is locked in, the like workflow is locked in, because you gotta move really fast to be able to like have the ideas, do the reporting, execute the story. You don't have time to like be reinventing all these things all the time. And what I found was like, I was like reinventing the voice that I was using to right. sort of, you know, the Alexis plus fusion, like what is that? Was actually a really hard equation to solve even though there were only two uh, factors, you know? Um, and that, that was really tough. Yeah. And so when I came into the sort of leadership role, it was sort of like, how do we simplify this for people? How do we make it so that they can just know what to publish in? And I think places that have done the best over the, just the last few years are places that retained a bundle. And that seems sort of nuts because people thought, oh, of course, magazines should go away. Like television news programs should go away. These things should go away. Because the internet essentially functions like to atomize all uh, stories produced by any media entity. So, you know, your user is only going to experience, you know, one of those things. So like, why are you trying to make things in these bundles anymore? Um, but the thing that I think it turns out is that a magazine like the Atlantic, uh, a magazine like Wired news programs that exist, even like in the CNN kind of weird format, like that's actually where people exercise editorial judgment and where people exercise editorial judgment is where they create the operational mission of the place. Because those decisions structure what it is that people believe they're doing. And when you lose the bundle, it's harder to play that out over an individual story level. So the bundles for all these places end up being, you know, the reserve, the, 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 the brand reserve, right? And I know that sounds like a callous term in this way, but it's not. I mean, it's the core of the entity. It's, it's, it's what you're drawing on as you try and do all these other things. But if you don't have the core, if you don't have a bundle in that way, think it's very hard to generate it. It's really hard to build the airplane as you're flying, as the cliche goes. So a couple of years ago, you were trying to like wrap your head around managing people and editorial mission. You're still with Fusion, mm -hmm. but you're kind of doing your own thing at Fusion now. Doing I'm editor at large. Yeah, I'm editor at large. You know, in the way I don't that, even know what I, like, I'll be honest. What does editor at large mean? Best job. No, I, <laughs> I think it means something different everywhere, right? I mean, in our case, I think it has meant that I'm working on a project that we needed to get done. And right. so that's So you're doing. doing a show, a podcast show, an audio show about shipping containers called containers. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, that couldn't be more different from trying to build an international media company. That's it's right. local. It's uh, set in the Oakland port, which we can kind of see the glow of coming up on the horizon there. Um, you figured me out, Lammer. You figured me out. <laughs> yeah. So you're really lazy. <laughs> I only do reporting within a one mile radius of my house. So the show is actually massively ambitious um, in that I listened to the first episode and I was like, oh, it's, it's that, and then the second episode started, and the second episode is a completely different story than the first episode. So I don't even, I'm trying to think of like, like, uh, like Richard Linklater's um, slacker is like um, scenes of like post-collegiate Austin. This is like scenes of the shipping container world. Tell me like when you thought of this project, what was it in your mind? 
When I thought of containers, I, I honestly, I thought of it as it, it was uh, Friday night, had dinner with my wife, possibly had some wine. I started tweeting like, how awesome would it be if there were this podcast that was like about like interviewing these like uh, old ship captains, you know, because I had met one. And when we boarded his ship, sat down and he kind of came in and, you know, I thought he was old Russian. Now I think he's probably old Romanian dude, you know, and he's got his like a uh, pack of like Marlboro Reds and he puts them on the table and he sits down and he looks across at me and the people I was there with. And he goes, so what is your intent? <laughs> you know? And I just like. You know, and so I hung out with him, saw the bridge, walked around with these, like, the Filipino crew of the place. And then we got brought back to that same kind of meeting room. And the chief engineer came in and he goes, you've been up to the bridge. Now you, you saw the brain. Now I will show you the heart. And then he took us down into the engine room and, like, showed us the engine room. And I was just sort of kind of, like, blown away by this whole world, which had all of these similarities, I felt like to the internet world in the sense that it is a form of global capitalism. Um, it has specific technological kind of instantiations. It has this massive impact on the world. Each shipping container is essentially like an internet packet. It, it, it changed things that much. And I just kind of thought like, man, that'd be cool if I just like interviewed a bunch of people who are associated with this. And it turned out that the, uh, a, a startup shipping company named Flexport was willing to sponsor such a, a vision guy. I think he might've like liked my tweet and then I like sent him an email. Like, are you serious? <laughs> and then like, it kind of like went like that. It was like yeah. the weirdest sales cycle of all time. Yeah. And they ended up, they ended up sponsoring the thing. They've been awesome. But at the time, you know, I was thinking about it as like, essentially like it would be a lead in and then like a, an interview kind of show. Um, but as I got, you know, I mean, at that point I started doing kind of what I do, which is becoming like a nerd about the subject that I'm most interested in. And I started getting so fascinated by basically what containers rot, like you know, really what containerization rot, you yeah. know, you've got a, a system that's essentially the underpinning for the rest of global capitalism. You know, um, it underpins essentially everything that isn't purely digital, uh, up to 90% of the things that you buy, like travel and shipping containers. And I, I got really interested in it. Can I do a portrait essentially of like the messiness of capitalism as it works now with all the forces of technology and automation and competition and, um, and global politics that are sort of impinging on this thing at this moment? Like maybe this is actually a perfect way of being able to capture, you know, capitalism circa 2017. And on top of it, you're capturing the underpinning of like the rest of the global economy. I mean, just on the through the West Coast port, you're talking about $2 trillion worth of the economy are dependent on those things. And you've got maybe like 10,000 longshoremen who unload all those things. Like those 10,000 people are like, an unbelievably important labor force. They're, on the one hand, a through point, but they're also a choke point. All of these kinds of companies and businesses, they're all also you know, necessary to, to have in order to maintain global trade, and yet people don't really think about them. And so it just became, for me, this incredible opportunity to be able to kind of say, like, how does the world work? Because... Right. I don't fucking know, and neither does anyone else, you know? And until you really look at something really closely like this, that's when you come to understand, you know, oh shit, like the complexity of the thing is so intense, you know? 
what you just described, the container ship is the internet, could be a blog post and it could be a 19 volume leather bound <laughs> book set, you know? <laughs> how do you zero in yeah, on what, yeah. how far you go? I just took those as the two endpoints and picked the middle. Yeah. Um, no, I, you know, it was, it was, it was hard. I think what I tried to do was be like driven by the most unusual access that I could get because I feel like that is a service to listeners and that's something that journalism can do as well as just the stories that I could find. Um, and I think that most of the episodes are like a mix of those two things. Yeah. Like what's the best story that I could get with the most interesting access that I could have, yeah. you know? Yeah. And you know, so one of the episodes is about two Filipino sailors. Are they the most interesting Filipino sailors in the world? Are they distinct from all other Filipino sailors? Are they like, well, I don't know. Yeah. You know, but there's 350,000 Filipino sailors. That's about, you know, a quarter of all of the sailors in the world and a much larger chunk of all the sailors going back and forth across the Pacific, which is the most important trade route in the world. And I actually felt like, in a sense, just having their voices, just being able to, to talk to them about what their daily life was like, uh, was a really significant part of this story that's almost never told because of the restrictions that are placed on Filipino sailors and the sort of language barriers that exist. Yeah, was and, it tough to get that? I mean, there's uh, you don't use their names in that episode. Can't really tell you how it happened, but it was blind luck. I'll put it that way. This is not how it happened, but if I, now knowing what I know, were to do it, there's a place at pretty much every port called the Seafarers Mission, um, which is essentially a, a, a largely religious service group, like ecumenical religious group that essentially provides service just to sailors. Yeah. So every major port, they've got this thing and sailors can go and, you know, hang out there, buy some food. They usually have like nice Filipino snacks. Um, but the other thing they do is they run vans and those vans take people basically to big box stores like all over America. So you go to Long Beach, you do the same thing and they would take you to whatever Long Beach <laughs> big box store there is. So you rented a van and just hung out. <laughs> <in> some <laughs> seafarers. I actually, I have, I have driven some seafarers uh, to Emeryville yeah, and yeah, uh, who are not you, in the, you guys, I got are, a Prius. Are not got, in the show. We don't have to ride in the van. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, you find in the podcast that I have uh, a Volvo, yeah. which I got made fun of by the some of the guys on the tugboats. Um, <laughs> the, actually, you know, the tugboat industry is like one of the most fascinating things that I'd never thought about in my life, uh, in part because they're not unionized. There's a, a series of companies up and down the West Coast that are just locked in like horrible competition where you know, the tugboat moves cost a few hundred dollars and these massive shipping lines, these massive global companies obviously have all the leverage and they just have to stay alive. <laughs> like, and that's, they have to like have enough money to like pay the repair crews and like pay the, the tugboat pilots. And like, that's, that's what it is, you know? And um, I think that what, what I came away from all these things are, you know, sometimes you think like, man, the media business is the worst. This is so hard. When you spend time with all these other business people, you probably are going to say, capitalism is the worst. This is hard. <laughs> like, yeah. This is like competition that's linked to global things. It's so hard because global companies are locked in this incredible efficiency battle that just drives all of the slack out of the system. Like media, there's no slack left. And I don't know where things go after that, right? So when you're talent, like a lot of your writing is about everything. The California water crisis, it's everything. So, yes. Everything about California, you could connect to the California yeah. water crisis. What do you find about writing 
the uh, final act of stories that are about everything. How do you do, how do you oh. end those? Things? Oh, that's interesting. what's episode eight like? Oh man, or is there oh, that's season, interesting. Season yeah, no, no, two no, no, and no, you're punting on this, this one. It. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, um, in this case, you know, it's it's really about people and capitalism, right? Like yeah. the whole thing is like the people. Everyone dies of capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Everyone, yeah, everyone dies. Lol. Like rotating as an animated gif. That's the end. No, um, it's really about when there aren't people. Yeah. You know, where a lot of the capitalist technological impulse pushes is reduction of people. How do we how do we have the fewest number of people possible? Um, and I think where I where I come out on this is essentially there will always be people in the circuitry. Um, if if you can do your job like a robot, people will make you do that and then replace you with a robot. But there's so many things where it doesn't quite work like that. And one of the most fascinating things about automation as a grand topic of inquiry, which is going to be something I'm going to spend you know probably the rest of my career thinking and writing about, is that it's much trickier and stranger than it ever appears. It's almost never a one-to-one human-to-machine replacement. That's just not what happens. What happens is a machine comes in that can do certain things that are kind of like a human, but not totally. And then a new system gets put in place that sort of simulates something close to what the humans did, but in with a totally different kind of back end. And that is like a wild thing because only through time do you find where it's not the human system that it was before. And so basically the end of, I feel like almost any story that's about work right now should essentially end with what is the weird work that's going to be done around the main body of work that will be replaced by machines. And so that's what the last episode is. I usually ask people, it's my last question on this show, um, what are you going to do next? But I think it's kind of unfair since you haven't actually put the show out to ask what you're going to do next. I know something. You're going to do this. So <laughs> my question, uh, I'm going to reorient it slightly to uh, why make a podcast in 2017? What, like, what does it mean to you to be doing an audio? I saw, I was looking at your Twitter before we did this, and you had like tweeted out like a like some sort of uh, audio editing software. I think it was Adobe Audition or something like that. What, mm-hmm. what was it? Yeah, it was Audition. Adobe yeah. Audition. I was like, oh man. I know that's a person who's like uh, deep, deep in the audio. Like sometimes when you tweet out a screenshot, you're kind of like, help me, please. Um, like why, why audit? You've never done it before. Well, I like, did. I did essays for fresh air. Uh, oh, that's right. Right. Yeah. So but you've never like, like, you've never yeah, been sitting know, there never editing, editing it on your yeah. own computer before. Uh, you know, TV, video, yeah. print, digital. It's just kind of like, you know, kind of round it, you know, round it up. No, it's not. It's not it's, it, here's what it is. Um, we talked earlier about the bundle. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there, there used to be these bundles. Um, now, the closest thing in the digital world is essentially the subscription-driven things, like podcasts, like YouTube, and newsletters. I find those things tilt the incentive so that you tend to work more for your core audience rather than your max audience. Um, and I also am, as a user of podcasts, as a listener of podcasts, I like things that go super deep. And it's something that I feel like podcasts can do in a way that many other things cannot. And I, and I wanted to do that. I wanted to go super deep into this topic. Like Once I really sunk my teeth into it, I was like, this is something where you need to go super deep. And so there's kind of two ways of doing it. There's like a book or a podcast. So I did the podcast first and now i'm gonna do the book yeah. you know um that i mean that is a quality of the show it's like uh 
uh, not interested in container shipping, like get off the Too boat here. fucking bad. Yeah, like, yeah. like there's not anything <laughs> yeah. for you if you're not yeah, interested yeah. in container shipping. Well, here. what I would say is if you're not interested in the functioning of your economy, yeah. then get off now. You know, if you're not, I, I, because containers are, you know, they end up being the the other meaning of containers for me is that all these people end up being the sort of containers of much more than you think. Right. And so the, the, the podcast is supposed to open up these previously closed kind of professions and people who you wouldn't hear from. And then like those things are, are revealed to you. Um, and I think that obviously I'm too close to it right now to know if it's like a great thing. It's unquestionably the best podcast about shipping containers ever made. <laughs> That's what I was going for. That's what I was going for. Actually, you know, it's actually fascinating to put out something like this while definitely going to do a book about the same topic, although structured very differently. Because if it sucks, or it sucks in a way that annoys the people who are deep in the shipping industry oh, and in the yeah. port. You're fucked. You can't do the book. Do you hear from those people? Like the guy who's like been maintaining the like shipping container blog for 20 years. And he's like, you got it all wrong. I, I haven't yet, you know, but I, I, I there are people gonna hear. who are super deep in it. Yeah. I, I, you know, the people I'm most worried about are the longshoremen, um, you know, the, the labor folks, they feel like they feel like, and in fact have been wronged by media many, many, many times. Um, their side of the story is rarely told in part because they don't talk to anyone, but also in part because people fuck labor all the time in yeah. stories. They just, they don't consider the possibilities of the worldview of, of people who work and are not part of management. And, and I think that's a tough one. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, that's tough because, you know, if you come up in the way that we came up, when you want to change the world, you start a business and things like that. The, the fundamental worldview of labor is so different. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I do, I worry about how they perceive the overall project and whether it will be very difficult to mean to have good sourcing within yeah. the labor side of, of, uh, of shipping. Where does that labor, that interest in labor come from in you? I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, my family has had like a lot of ups and downs financially. I mean, not me and my wife, but like my, my parents. Um, and you know, at, at one point my dad was an investment banker at another point, my dad was, you know, in the local SEIU for janitors, you know? Um, and I think that's a weird circumstance. Uh, but it also has sensitized me to the idea that like when labor is bargaining, there's like real people like my dad, who will have better or worse lives as a result of that negotiation. Living here in Oakland amidst the most psychopathic, uh, amoral business boom in recent American history, <laughs> the, the least la labor-concerned business boom in American history. It may also be part of it. What? What? <laughs> no. Well, I mean, that may be a part of it, but like, what, what's it like? You're at a bar. You're like, hey, labor. People are like... Fuck you. <laughs> like, 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 what's it like living in Oakland? Uh, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, having worked for Fusion, which focuses a lot on social justice, I actually have run into a lot of the Oakland labor people. And I think that there's a group of people who are trying to hold both of these things closer than they have been. And I also think that, you know, contrary to the stereotypes of Silicon Valley, most 
people who work in tech are basically standard left-wing people. Yes. They actually do, in fact, want workers to be paid better and have more rights and be able to, like, go to the bathroom and have sick breaks and all, all these things. Like, they, they, they do want those things. Right. I, I think what's challenging occasionally is when you run into someone who essentially holds those values, but that every tactic that they know would tend to erode those things. It is fascinating to, to watch Silicon Valley try and understand people as, as like the like people that work for them and also to wrap it all up you know in automation artificial intelligence a lot like the last people to go are going to be like plumbers mechanics it's it's not like the last people to be automated or it's not going to go up the list of sort of cognitive professions and like theoretical physicists will be the last ones to go you know it's going to be patchier than that and a lot of what's going to remain is hands people with hands people who can move stuff in the physical world and who are considered by most people now to be blue collar folks. I'm renovating my apartment right now. And uh, I don't think plumbing is automatable. That's the kind of task that I, I don't, I don't want to rely fully on automation to handle. I mean, and you know, you, you just, you talk with people. I mean, I think it's going to be more, you know, for containers, I visited like a, a robot warehouse basically a place that's automating some of the tasks in warehouses and one of the things that you find is like a number one request of warehouses is give me a robot where i can just say follow me and that robot will follow me all the way around the warehouse that may eliminate a job yeah out of the warehouse because that person is faster at doing the work but it doesn't eliminate all the people yeah. <laughs> you know, and so essentially, you have half the people, but now you have twice the robots, and and now how are you going to reduce that again? Right? It's like it's they should study the brain of a cat for that. <laughs> follow, yeah, Fo right. Follow at like a medium <laughs> distance, never interact, but like don't lose track of me. You know, just like it's it's hilarious because one of the things that they had to do to make those uh, robots work was show the robots the back of a lot of different people's legs. Oh yeah. Uh, legs, 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 legs. So they had to get different people to come in in different pants with different leg shapes to show to the robots, to get, do the machine learning that would allow them to understand what they were looking at. And apparently one of the big problems was sheer tights. I was going to say like Jinkos are going to come back and fuck the <laughs> robots up. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it, it, it's like a, the stuff that humans are going to end up doing in order to make robots work, it's just going to get weirder and weirder, you know? And I think it's going to be a long time before the human input is eliminated from many of these systems. And for a while, I actually think there'll be a period in many of them where they have to balloon the human workforce before uh, it, it comes back down, which is also going to be bonkers. Thank you very much, Alexis Madrigal. Uh, come back on the show. You'll be interviewed by a robot next time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thank you very much to Alexis Madrigal for taping this at my mom's house in Berkeley. Thank you to our editor, Mickey Capper, our intern, Courtney Harrell, my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, our sponsors, MailChimp, Stamps.com, and of course, Casper. If you go to podsurvey.com slash longform, fill out a real quick survey it'll help us get more money from advertisers who will be more happy because they'll know more about you it's totally anonymous and after you fill it out you can enter to win 100 amazon gift card again podsurvey.com slash long farm we'll be back next week